You guys, it's a it's a fun day because we have a we have a we have a, a guest speaker today who's not really a guest. Um, Brian and Amber Riggs joined us a couple of years ago and uh, have fit right into this church family and been a real blessing. And uh, Amber, in particular, had some experience as far as training and teaching and writing. Um, and we, we all kind of bonded around what God was doing in that area of her life. And so she's going to bring the word this morning. Here's what you need to know about Amber. Uh, she's very smart, as most of, many of you know. She shakes her head all the time as if that's not true. It's just kind of silly. But Amber was the co-director. Uh, she was in a, in a different denomination until about three years ago, Church of God's seven, Seventh Day. And she helped to found and direct their training program for that entire denomination. Um, it was called uh, Artios Christian College. And uh, so she used her training in curriculum development to train up pastors in that denomination. And she did that for over a decade. So now she's here uh, with us and she's working on all kinds of really amazing writing projects. The most, the coolest one that we all love to talk about is that she is, she's a director of a, a program called One Story, which is a homeschool curriculum for the Bible Project. So you know the Bible Project, which we use for their videos. They're up in Portland. Uh, her and, uh, and her co-director are working to develop entire homeschool curriculums Along, alongside the Bible Project for that. So uh, she has a really unique gift in seeing the story of the Bible and being able to express that and communicate it. So I would love to give Amber Riggs a warm Christ Center welcome as we ask her to come up. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray. And Anna, why don't you come on up because you're going to read the scripture. Thank you, Lord, for our sister. Thank you for bringing her and, and her family into our family. And I pray that you would give her the, uh, the words to speak this morning. I pray that you would give her peace and joy. And I pray that you would help all of us to open our hearts and to hear what you have to say through her. And everyone said, amen. amen. Welcome. Welcome, Amber, and welcome, Anna Riggs, to read the scripture. Okay, there it is. Okay, John 6, 1 through 14. After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a, yeah, and a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up to the mountain, and he sat there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread will not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there is much grass in this place. So the men sat down 
about 5,000 in, in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given the thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments. Nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign of what he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who come into the world. Good morning, Christ Center. Well, talking about the Bible is one of my favorite things ever, so I am absolutely over the moon this morning. We've been journeying through the book of John together, and we just heard one story from John chapter 6. It's a really famous story, right? But surprisingly, that story is actually part of a much bigger story that reached its climax at the end of this chapter. So before we dig into John 6, we need to prepare ourselves to enter that bigger story. And we're gonna do that by identifying where we're at in our own stories. So we'll ask ourselves two simple questions. The first one is where are we? And the second one is what time is it? Okay, so you guys have to like respond or it's not gonna work. <laughs> okay, so where, and, oh, no answer is too dumb or too obvious. Okay, no one's gonna say Captain Obvious at you. Um, okay, so where are we right now? We're at Christ Center. There's more than one answer, too. We're at Christ Center. Where else are we? Oregon. Junction City. Planet Earth. America. Okay, we're all these places at the same time. And every single one of these locations holds memory. There's significance here. Okay, here's a second question. Once again, no answer is too obvious. What time is it? 10.58, morning, what else, fall, October, anything else? 2023, what was that? Time to get a watch. <laughs> yes, yes it is. Does anyone know what age we are in? What's that? What age are we in? So we are in the digital age. In fact, we're at the beginning of what sociologists call the digital revolution. And this is really important because one thing about revolutions is that they change everything. Um, it changes how we interact with the world and the nature of the digital revolution is that life is changing so quickly that sometimes it's hard to keep up with it, right? So let's think about this for a second. The digital revolution keeps changing how we shop, how we communicate, how we network, how we handle finances, how we get our news, and how much news we see. So yesterday, a lot of us were rattled by the news of a war in Israel. And part of this is that we have greater awareness of the atrocities of war than we've had at any time in history, apart from being in a war physically ourselves and it is horrifying. And so on the one hand, the digital revolution can feel very exciting. There's new technology coming out. I got a new phone two weeks ago with a great camera. Um, but on the other hand, 
it fuels uncertainty. And it can be disorienting. We find ourselves worrying about things we never knew to worry about. Especially when we throw our real life issues in on top of all of it. And yet, the digital revolution has helped us with these problems too, hasn't it? Google, how do I stop hiccuping? Alexa, where can I find butterscotch tea? Siri, what's the weather next week? Is no one's phone going off right now? I'm so disappointed. I was really hoping to catch somebody. Um, <laughs> but what about, should I take this new job? Or what does my daughter need from me right now? And I have four of them, so that's a really big question. <laughs> Why am I crying? Can I trust this person? What is my purpose in life? In one sense, the, the digital revolution is making our lives simpler, but in another sense, it's creating new questions and changing so many of the answers. The ground is shifting below us, and in some places, it's absolutely flooding. Things that were once clear aren't so clear anymore. In revolutions, especially the beginning of revolutions, a question constantly hovers beneath the surface. What is going on? Life isn't clear, so what do I do about it? When life isn't clear, what do I do about it? It's a big question. But we're going to put that question aside for a bit and enter the time and place of John Six. So we're a good-sized crowd of people right here. And so as we read this, let's picture ourselves as part of the crowd following Jesus. Here's the first scene in John 6. After this, Jesus went away to beside the Sea of Galilee. That is, the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd, that's us, followed him because they saw the signs he was doing in healing the sick. Jesus went up into the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. It was nearly time for the Passover, a Jewish festival. Okay, so we're part of the large crowd following Jesus, and why are we following him? We're seeing signs, we're seeing healings, because he's blowing our minds, healing people who had no hope of ever being healed. So let's ask our questions. First, where are we? Sea of Galilee, Israel, where else? Heard somebody. We're the mountainside. So we're on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee. And in the Bible, mountains are places where God meets with people. In fact, if we're part of the crowd, we know that it was on a mountain that God met with Moses, who was our greatest leader ever. And it was on this mountain that he gave our ancestors teachings that form the core of the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And these books are also called the five books of Moses, which will be a little important later on. Okay, so what time is it? What, what is it? Lunch. It is lunchtime. <laughs> what, what, other, what other answers do we have? What time is it? It's Passover time. It's Passover time. It's early spring. 
It's almost Passover. And as part of the crowd, we know that Passover is a huge festival that celebrates how God rescued our ancestors from slavery in Egypt through Moses. This rescue story involves overthrowing Pharaoh, walking through a sea on dry land and eating bread from heaven. And Passover time is a really, really, really big deal. And this is really important because Passover time is code language for revolution time. So it's almost Passover time and this crowd we are part of is hungry for a new revolution. The Roman emperor is our new pharaoh. He taxes us so much that 90% of us live at the poverty level. We don't know where our next meal is coming from. But what can we do about it? We need a new Moses. In fact, the books of Moses tell us to expect a new Moses. We've been hearing stories about Jesus and we can't help but wonder, is it him? Is Jesus the new Moses? At this point in the story, we look up and see thousands of more people marching to join us in rallying around Jesus. Yes, tensions are high and revolution is definitely in the air. And then much to our surprise, we discovered Jesus is hosting a massive feast on this mountain. Where did the food come from? We certainly didn't bring any food with us. And then the whispers start. Jesus fed us all with five loaves and two fish. Five? All this from five loaves? Wait, five? Five, like the five books of Moses? And there are 12 basketfuls of bread left over. Wait, 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel? This is bread from heaven. Just like Moses gave us in the wilderness. You guys, you may think I'm making too much of these numbers here, but John didn't include these numbers just for the fun of it. In the ancient world, writing was extremely expensive. And John is part of a tradition where only the most significant details are recorded and they often have more than one meaning. The two fish are loaded with meaning too. And the crowd goes wild. Here's verse 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this really is the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. So when Jesus realized that they were intending to come and seize him to make him king, he withdrew again by himself up the mountain. We can't miss this. This crowd we are part of, we are full on ready to make Jesus king. We are ready to march him back to Jerusalem and let Rome know what is what. So before we go on, let's stop here and reflect for a minute. Because I wanna know what, let's just think this through, what mountainside moments do you have with Jesus? Because it's important that we remind ourselves of these moments. While you're thinking about yours, I'll share one of mine. 
One of my mountainside memories took place at a writer's conference in 2019. I didn't know any other attendees, but I found out that another woman from Junction City would be going, so we decided to drive together, sight unseen. I met Kathy Davis for the first time when I picked her up from her house. And man, what a woman to get to drive with, you guys. <laughs> she saw how nervous I was and encouraged me with some stories of her own. And as a direct result of one of those stories, I found myself sitting at empty tables all week on purpose. I'd plop my stuff down, say a prayer, and go through the buffet line. Then I'd come back to discover that I was sitting with the exact people I needed to connect with. You guys, every single time. Um, this happened every meal. And Jesus fed me through these connections. But that was only part of it. Because that week, Jesus reminded me that he sees me and that he cares about me. And he did it in really meaningful ways. You have your own stories that you need to remember. So you followed him to the mountain, and we've had moments where he's amazed us. But now we're going to journey with this crowd beyond the mountainside. Because as you've probably discovered, the nature of following Jesus is that sometimes we get to meet him on the mountain, but then he invites us to follow him elsewhere. So, how serious is this crowd about making Jesus king? When we wake up the next morning, we know that Jesus hasn't gone across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. But we can't find him. We have to let this sink in. We know there was only one boat. We watched Jesus' students get on that one boat and we know with absolute certainty, because we were watching with Hawkeyes, that Jesus did not get on that boat. But we can't find him. Here's verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay, let's get this straight. Jesus isn't there, but we've been watching the boats. We know he didn't get on a boat. So why are we getting on boats? There's only one possibility that makes sense to me, and it is a crazy one, you guys. It is absolutely bonkers. But here it is. If Jesus is a new Moses, and Moses miraculously crossed the sea, what's to stop Jesus from doing it? Meanwhile, the crowd is still growing. Because here are these rumors, this guy's doing these things, is he the new Moses? The crowd is still growing. And in fact, more people just arrived on boats. So we pile into their boats, and we persevere in following Jesus across the sea. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi! When did you come here? That is the burning question. <sighs> okay, new story. So where are we now? Capernaum. Okay, we're in Capernaum. And this is really interesting to me because Capernaum means village of Nahum. And Nahum 
means comfort. We're in the village of comfort. But this word, Nahum, Nahum, is also tied to the act of relenting. This is significant because we're going to see Jesus invite us into comfort in this story. But in order to go there, we're going to have to release some things. We're going to have to relent. Okay, so what time is it? What time is it, what? Okay, it's still almost Passover time. It's still spring, it is still revolution time. And anticipation is now rising. So let's keep going. So Rabbi, when did you come here? Tell us this story. And here's Jesus' reply, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Y'all, Jesus doesn't answer our question. <laughs> Rabbi, when did you come here? He doesn't give us the story about how he got to Capernaum. If we want to hear that story, we're going to have to listen to John's own story of it this week in the devotional. And yes, it's a really big one. But instead, Jesus asks us to consider two types of food. So what are they? He asks us to consider, yeah, food that perishes and food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is picking up threads here from the Hebrew scriptures. So where is the first place in the Hebrew scriptures that we see these two types of food placed alongside one another? Food connected with death and food connected with life. Where do we see it? The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's like a movie quote. Everyone in the crowd would have recognized this reference to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. Jesus is doing something here that is simply stunning. He's using comparison because he wants to make a huge offer. Jesus is offering us the food from the tree of life. You guys, this is crazy. And he's telling us that he is that food. In the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is associated with our human desires, with things that look and seem good to us, with a domino effect that leads to death. The tree of life, on the other hand, is associated with God's life-sustaining wisdom with letting God, going to God to let him define what is good, with letting his wisdom lead us into greater measures of communal flourishing, into greater vibrancy of life for everyone. Jesus is inviting us into a much bigger story. When we hear the words eternal life, our minds are conditioned to think living forever. 
But when Jesus says it, he means something even bigger than leaving, living forever. And it's an absolutely huge, revolutionary invitation. So I'm going to let the good people at Bible Project explain what Jesus means by eternal life. If you know very much about the story of the Bible, you've probably heard that Jesus offers eternal life. Sounds nice, but what does Jesus mean by eternal life? Well, Jesus adopted this phrase from the Hebrew scriptures. In English, it's translated eternal life or sometimes everlasting life. But the phrase literally translated from Hebrew is life unto the age. Life unto the age. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a dense phrase. And to understand it, we need to first talk about what an age is in the Bible. Let's do it. So the Hebrew word for age is olam, and it refers to a period of time. What length of time? Well, any length of time, actually. And it can be in the past or in the future. What matters is that it's a period of time with some common attribute that remains constant. So, for example? So, like the time of Abraham and his descendants all the way up to Moses. The common attribute is it's the time of Moses' ancestors. And so Moses can say, remember the days of the age, the years of past generations and elders. Okay. Or an age can be shorter and in the future. Like Samuel, who's going to spend his whole life serving in the temple. During his dedication, his mother Hannah calls this an age. So an age is a period of time that has a unique and constant characteristic. Exactly. And there could be all sorts of different ages, depending on what you want to focus on. You got it. And so someone could live in two ages at the same time if those ages happen to overlap. All right, so back to the phrase, life unto the age. What age is this talking about? Okay, so in the beginning of the biblical story, humans are made from the dust of the ground. This is a common biblical image for creatures that are mortal. That is, they live in an age where they could die. But God takes humanity and places them in a sacred garden where they're invited to experience a new and deeper kind of life. By eating from the tree of life. Yeah, we're told it offers them life unto the age, a life of infinite potential because it connects them to God's own divine life. But the story takes a turn. And instead of accepting life unto the age, they eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. Right. Taking from this tree means seizing life for themselves on their own terms, apart from God's wisdom. And so they're exiled from life unto the age, and they go into the age of death. They mistreat each other. They do what's right in their own eyes. Things get really violent. Exactly. And so the whole rest of the story of the Bible can be thought of as a choice between two different ages. The age of life on our own terms that leads to death, or the age of God's own life. And while humanity has rejected God's life, God promises he'll open the way back. Exactly. And it's that promise that ultimately leads the story to Jesus. He's presented as God's own life become human, so that both ages overlap in him. He lives in the age of mortality and death, and in the age of eternal life at the same time. And so he can offer people access to life unto the age. Right. It's like what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yet, just like humanity rejected God's life in the garden, Jesus was rejected and put to death. 
But God's life is more powerful than death. And so Jesus rises from the dead and he can offer God's life to others. Like the Gospel of John also says, Whoever trusts in him will not perish, but has eternal life. That is, life unto the age. Cool. Now, most people think of eternal life as something that happens after you die. But in the Bible, access to this age is something I can have right now. Yeah, remember, Jesus was the place where the age of God's life meets the age of death. And that means that when people trust him, they can experience eternal life here and now. But we also still live in the age of death. So what happens when I die? Well, just like death couldn't overpower God's eternal life in Jesus, similarly, we can remain alive to God even if we're physically dead. In the Bible, this is called being with Christ. And it's not talked about very much because it's not how the overall biblical story ends. The focus of the Bible is about when the age of life completely overcomes the age of death. And those who are with Christ are recreated to share in God's eternal life. A world where the age of death no longer has any power. Exactly. Because life that is fully connected to God's own eternal life and love is a life that will never end. So eternal life, life unto the age, is code language. Jesus is inviting us into an amped up Garden of Eden, you guys. Not just in the future, but now. We're going to switch to N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament translation for the rest of the story because it tethers us to this language. Here's verse 53. I'm telling you the solemn truth, Jesus replied. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Anyone who feasts upon my flesh and drinks my blood has the life of God's coming age, and I will raise them up on the last day. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread of which came down from heaven. It isn't like the bread which the ancestors ate and died. The one who eats this bread will share the life of God's new age. The life of God's new age. Not just in the future when Jesus returns and resurrects our bodies for good, but in the present. And here is Jesus putting himself in the slot of the tree of life. He is the food of life, the bread of life. Do we hear how crazy this sounds? And the crowd can't handle it. Playing the role of the Israelites in the wilderness, this is a revolution story here, the crowd grumbles. We know this guy. We know his parents. He's just a regular guy. How can he say these things? The crowd argues. What he's saying doesn't even make sense. We go back and forth with Jesus for the rest of the chapter trying to make sense of it. And in the end, most of the crowd turns around and goes home. 
Jesus is simply too much for us. We're the same people he fed on the mountainside. We're the same people who followed him across the sea, who've been ready to fight to make him king. But here's verse 60. When they heard this, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is difficult stuff. Who can bear to listen to it? We want a revolution, and here Jesus is giving it to us, but it isn't the kind of revolution we have in mind. Now there's a lot that fascinates me about this story. But I wanna bring it closer to home for a moment. Has Jesus ever confused you? Have you ever felt guilty because Jesus confused you? Because what he is saying doesn't seem to make sense. Because following him doesn't always make sense. This story reminds us that wrestling with Jesus' teachings isn't a new experience. Jesus often said and did things that caused people to walk away scratching their heads. But then, he and his students would have a conversation about it. And this story isn't any different. So let's press in and eavesdrop on a conversation. Verse 67, Jesus turned to the 12. You don't want to go away too, do you, he asked. Simon Peter spoke up. Master, he said, who can we go to? You're the one who's got the words of the life of the coming age. We've come to believe it. We've come to know it, that you are God's holy one. Peter recognizes that Jesus has something no one else has. Jesus has the words of the life of the coming age. He has wisdom that belongs to a future time and place where life is glorious. The Roman government doesn't have that wisdom. The Pharisees don't have that wisdom. The priests don't have that wisdom. Moses didn't even have that wisdom. But Peter has come to believe and come to know that Jesus has that wisdom. So who can we go to? Let's ask ourselves this question. Who can we go to? The politicians, the CEOs, the news pundits, Hollywood stars, social media influencers, because they all claim to be in the know, you guys. They all claim to know the path to a better life, to know what's wrong and how to fix it, to know the way of the revolution. But their answers keep falling short. Peter, however, has spent day and night with Jesus. He saw things we never saw. 
So let's hear what Peter is saying. Now, did Jesus' words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood make sense to Peter? At this point in the story, I really don't think so. But Peter had come to know that if he stayed near Jesus, Jesus' flesh and blood would indeed bring about the life of the age to come, just as Jesus said it would. And for that reason, he would persevere in staying near to Jesus. Life is confusing, it's unclear, it doesn't make any sense, but Peter urges us on. When life isn't clear, what do we do about it? We persevere in staying near to Jesus. He's the one who has the words of life of the age to come. He has the wisdom and his spirit empowers us to live in that wisdom. For Peter and the disciples, this looked like following Jesus around wherever he went. And Jesus may not be physically present anymore. And yet, our world is still full of stories of people who did what Peter did. Even when life wasn't clear, they persevered in staying near to Jesus. When I think about stories like this, one just rises to the top for me because I think about my grandma and her two sisters. I called them Mama, Annie, and Aunt Dot. And in fact, there's a lot of people who knew them as Mama, Annie, and Aunt Dot. Dan Bellows didn't meet them until he was a teenager, and guess what he called them? <laughs> they were Mama, Annie, and Aunt Dot to Dan, too. So after their husbands died, Mama, Annie, and Aunt Dot, they all moved in together. <laughs> and you guys, we called them the little ladies. They were just so precious. And anytime you were worried about anything at all, you just give them a call. And you could count on it. As soon as they hung up the phone, their 80-year-old knees <laughs> would walk down the hallway and make their way to the floor by their beds. That was their designated praying spot. So when I had a test at school, they would know the exact time of that test and they would get on their knees then too. In fact, they prayed for everyone taking that test. If you were sick, they prayed for everyone who had your illness. If you had a job interview, they prayed for everyone who was interviewing. <laughs> Think about that one for a second. <laughs> Definitely made me think twice about calling them a few times. <laughs> but they didn't stay near to Jesus because Jesus had never confused them. Rather, they persevered in staying near because their lives had been hard. Mama, Annie, and Aunt Dot grew up during the Great Depression. They were too poor to own shoes, so they walked to school barefooted. At home, their dad drank away what little money they had, and he was not kind when he was drunk. But 1934 was a particularly harsh year for all of them, but especially from the perspective of my Aunt Dot. In March, her closest sister, Eva, died of three-day pneumonia. Eva left behind a husband and two little boys. Three months later, in June, 
her younger brother died of three-day pneumonia after going for a swim in the creek. A third blow would come just two months later. In August, three-day pneumonia killed Aunt Dot's husband. And just like that, she became a young widow tasked with raising their young son on her own. And yet, through all of this, she came to believe, she came to know that Jesus is the one who has the words of the life of the coming age. All three of them came to believe and to know it deep in their bones. And they continued to persevere in staying near to him all the days of their longer than average lives. I don't know about you, but I want to do what they did. I want to stay near to Jesus no matter how hard and confusing life gets. So with this in mind, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes while we ask our questions one last time. First, where are you in this story right now? With your eyes closed, try to picture yourself in that location. Maybe you're at the beginning of the story and you're on your way to a mountainside to find out what Jesus is all about. Maybe you're on the mountainside and Jesus is blowing your mind. Maybe you're looking for him across the waters. Or maybe you're in the village and Jesus just doesn't make any sense. When we're around Jesus, we'll eventually experience all of these things. So where are you right now? What do you see? Do you see the view from the mountain? Do you see people eating? Do you see miles of water all around you? A beach? A crowd? What do you hear? The sound of bread breaking, people visiting, water crashing against your boat. Maybe you hear the sound of confused voices. Now, as you're in this place, what time is it for you? What are you going to do next? I want to suggest that no matter where you're at, no matter what place you're in, it's time for all of us to lean in a little closer.
to persevere and coming near and staying near to Jesus. So for the next few moments, we're going to practice coming near to Jesus and asking him for wisdom. Maybe you're walking up to him on the mountain or you spot him on the seashore and you're rowing towards him. And as you're in this place, wherever that is, let's ask him. Jesus, what words of life do you have for me right now? What words of wisdom do you have? What does it look like for me to stay near to you during this season? And finally, what does it look like for me to be nourished by your words? Nourished by your life. As we open our eyes, elders and small group leaders would, um, could you go ahead and make your way up to the front? Friends, tomorrow's a new day. And when we wake up, we may discover that Jesus isn't where he was this morning. And in fact, we may still be waiting on him to answer all the questions we just asked him because he takes his time sometimes. And we may have to look for him all over again. But John 6 reminds us that this is part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It looks like following him from place to place. It looks like persevering and staying near to him. But John 6 also reminds us that Jesus indeed is offering us a revolution. He's bringing us into the life of an age where everything will be different. And yes, this is a hard concept. And in some seasons, it can be harder to believe in than others. So I'm gonna pray Jesus' words of life over us. And if you need that coming age to break into any area of your life right now, I'd invite you to come and ask someone on, your prayer on the prayer team to come alongside you and asking for that. Whether it's your job, relationships, illness, questions, hard situations. Because who else can we go to? Jesus is the one who has the words of life of the coming age. Let's pray.